Hey everybody, Michael here. Before we get started with today's episode, I just wanted to stop for a second and let everyone know how much we appreciate you tuning in every other week to listen to the Drunken UX podcast. It means a lot to us how many of you have joined us on this journey for the last year and a half. And regardless of whether this is your 38th episode or your first, we think you'll enjoy what's to come in the next half of season two. If you've been enjoying the show, there is one quick favor that I'd like to ask. Stop for a second in your podcast app and take just a moment to hit that like or share button. If you're feeling really squirrely, leaving us a rating or a review is a great way to help others find the show, and it only takes a minute. That's it. Thanks for your support, and here we go. Clever intro comes in here where Michael says something about Michael being a host and Aaron being one of the other hosts and then a conflict of interest about whether we should be called co-hosts or just hosts or how that should work. But either way, hey, everybody, welcome to the Drunken UX podcast. I'm your host, Michael Feenan. You're not supposed to read the words verbatim. Well, if I if you would write me a better <laughs> intro at the start of this, I could run with it. But you, it's in italics. You threw all of these show notes together and I'm just going with what you gave me to work with. So don't... <laughs> Don't blame me on that. I'm your other host, Aaron Hill. How you doing? I'm all right, I guess. Oh, wait, were you asking them or me? Oh, I guess you, because they can't answer now. They can answer later. Let everybody know, or everybody let Aaron know. How you doing in two weeks? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. That was the greeting. Um, now I do a sponsor shout out. So everybody, uh, if you're looking for a map, go stop by newcloud.com slash drunken UX. Uh, you can check out their mapping software. Uh, they are beta testing a new product that they'll be debuting soon, which is a Braille-based 3D printed map Ooh. for accessibility stuff. Very neat. Oh, uh, I saw a picture of that. Yeah, yeah. That is really cool. They, it was shared out on Instagram and stuff. So, uh, yeah, check that out. That's kind of neat. Uh, newcloud.com slash drunken UX. Uh, if you're looking for us, uh, too bad. Yeah, we're we're not here. I don't know what to tell you about that. Uh, uh, go by Drunken UX, uh, just all the places. Twitter, Facebook, Drunken UX, uh, Instagram, Drunken UX Podcast. Um, Slack is uh, drunkenux.com slash Slack. Slash Slack. You can jump in there and chat with us. Uh, we're all those places. Maybe someday we'll do a live show and like pull up Slack or something and, and do something that way. That might be a neat idea. I don't know. Brainstorming. I wanted to give a special shout out to Chris Weimer. I think I said the name right, hopefully. Apologies if I didn't. Uh, who wrote us in to just say that he's found the show helpful with his college courses, which I think is super awesome. Is why we do the show, I guess. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, uh, yeah, if, if you've uh, found the show helpful, let us know. If you don't find the show helpful, let us know. Um, we're always interested in, in whatever feedback. Actually, somewhere, and I'll share it out, uh, there's a survey you can get to where you can give us all kinds of feedback about you know whether it's there show is. length or tone uh, information things like that so i'll i'll get that link out there uh let's see what do you got in your glass i can't tell oh it's it's getting getting warmer so i've got a vodka tonic oh yeah it is it's it, this room is just a hair warm kansas has mm -hmm. gone from nice to brutal very quickly because it's <laughs> say that again we're drowning you know basically and right. now it's hot and so now the humidity is through the roof Ugh. did you get torn did you get tornadoes like oklahoma did uh we had a small tornado here on the south end of town okay. um 
the little one. That, yeah, it was little, but I mean, there was some damage, so. Okay. Kansas, what can I say? You know what they say, that if you ever see a small tornado, it's really important to look around and find the larger mother tornado and make sure you don't walk in between them or it will charge you. Uh, that is actually a fact. I can... Yeah, I can guarantee you. Um, I learned, I learned that in Boy Scouts. Yeah, don't uh, don't get between a uh, child tornado and its debris ball. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I've got. I'm. I'm. I was indecisive tonight, so I brought like part of my bar in here with me. I've got uh, <laughs> Maker's Forty Six. I only had like one glass worth of Maker's Forty Six left, so I'm finishing that, and then I'm like, I don't know what to go to next. So then I brought in a bottle of Ronza Kappa EXO. Uh, rum but i'm like maybe i don't want rum and so i grabbed a bottle of high west distillery uh burai rye <laughs> bourbon um the the bottle for this is is gorgeous though it's like a, see. it's kind of a bespoke uh glass oh that is bottle nice. with like a funky like the the base of it like the glass is all weird yeah um, yeah it's like bubbly it's, it, it's kind of like an old school bottle like you would see from like an 1880s saloon or something right uh, it has those little imperfections to make it look like it's handmade but uh, a buddy of mine <laughs> brought me this uh from park city utah uh Ooh. and it's yeah it's it's actually very it's quite good um hmm. so we'll see i'll switch to one of those sometime at some point uh nice. let's see uh notes notes you know. okay yeah um, oh so so i <laughs> i sent you a link to a funny tweet it was not funny. Uh, it was enraging. <laughs> what are you talking no, about? Your your response was funny. <laughs> I uh I don't you know some people just like to uh do clickbait. Let's just start start it that way. So this tweet was I I think you saw it from Java, right? It was mm-hmm. Java Oracle Java retweeted this article from a guy named Brian Norlander. I'm sure I'm sure he's a great guy and Brian if you ever hear this I you know, nothing against you. He he wrote an article called Stop Writing Code Comments. <laughs> to which I uh, immediately uh, said no. <laughs> what like okay, like the intent of his article is far more sensible than the title is. And we'll actually circle back to this later because it's kind of related to one of our topics. However, I think he deserves all the rinsing that he got for that stupid title, the clickbaity title. It's because, I mean, he he has a point that he gets to throughout it, which, you know, is this idea that some people use comments as a crutch. They will over comment code because they're trying to explain something that wasn't well written. And that is true and fair. And I have seen it and I have written some of that at some point in my life. Sure. The approach to the topic was not done in a way that, I would have found helpful um, as a learning developer. Um, it was very chastising. And well, and I mean, frankly, while I kind of agreed with the the big picture point, I didn't sure. agree with a lot of the smaller points that were sprinkled in as salt throughout it. Yeah, uh, the one the one point he does he quotes some or was it Ron Jeffries? It was someone, and he said, uh, "Oh, code never lies. Comments sometimes do." His point was like, you can change the code and change the functionality of the program and not change the comment, and the code is none the wiser, but now you have a rotted comment. But, like, I mean, just maintain your comments. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Comments 
will always be useful. Yeah. I find it to be a good thought process as I'm Mm -hmm. writing code because it keeps me honest, especially if you've got a lot of loops that go back and forth or things like that. Yeah. Um, You know, if you've got code that isn't self-documenting, like, you know, if you're writing Java, you can generate Java docs and stuff off your comments. Yeah. That's why I thought it was funny that Java would retweet that because they they invented Java doc. Like right. that's Yeah. Um you know the, the argument is that obviously your code itself should be readable that you know it should be self-explanatory you should be able to look at it and know what it does. Um and I mean that's true I guess. But the reality is that programmers as they especially get better their technique changes, they abstract things, Mm -hmm. you know, they can reference stuff. And while, yes, you can always make this kind of argument that, well, the abstraction should be named the right way or or whatever, (laughs) there can still be a lot of hidden stuff there. But more importantly, not having that becomes detrimental to code as a learning tool, in my opinion. So there's, there's two things that my two immediate reactions to the to like the idea of not writing comments or that comments are bad, and this is actually like a sentiment that I have heard from other developers. Usually, I don't want to say newer, but I don't know. Just other developers. Full stop. I the two things that I think are important about comments are one, comments are readable. Like you know, I mean, you should be writing comments that are like language, like reads like a sentence, etc. And the reason that I like that is the examples he gives, they aren't bad examples. Like you can read them and be like, oh yeah, I can figure out what this does. But you still have to parse it. You still have to process it. And that's like, that's cognitive load when you're reading. It's like, um, I, I, uh, a while ago I was complaining about people who use emojis in place of words. That, that is not the kind of processing because you have to contextualize what the emoji means in that place of the word. Whereas with a word, we we have uh, shortcutting stuff in our brains that just allow us to scan it more easily. But with with code, like I can look at line of code, I can fully understand it. But if it has a comment above it that says something like um, "process employees based on status," like I can see that, and it's like, okay, cool. Like I know basically what this is supposed to do. I also find that it helps break up the flow of code. Um, mm-hmm. You know, especially when you've got a lot of nested, uh, you know, indented loops and stuff like that sometimes midway through it can become difficult to know if you've jumped into something new or not i i like having comments above functions and things like that simply because visually it gives my eyes a way to break up the flow of things yeah yeah so you know that like you're in a different or at least you should be in a different method right yeah because otherwise we have a habit of like smashing you know run on code basically is kind Mm -hmm. of what we end up with at that point um, and there's something there. There's almost like it, it gives your code a timber, almost uh, yeah, a rhythm yeah. to it that lets it that makes it easy to follow along and know when you're in and out of different things. Um, and I have one actual big argument for this that isn't technical at all. Okay, it's that most, not most. That's a very unfair thing of me to say. There are some programmers out there who are fantastic programmers they are terrible Mm -hmm. communicators and Mm. learning the process of writing clear concise good comments to me is an exercise in communication that i think a lot of people would benefit from yeah i and i i think 
cribbing on that note, um, sometimes you may have you may have gone through this full like built this like magnificently amazing tower in your mind of concepts and abstractions and everything else, and you've written some really awesome code, and it's completely apparent what it does to you. But someone else who maybe didn't go through all that thought process and do all that code spelunking, they may look at it and it may not be as obvious. And more importantly, sometimes, especially when you're dealing with legacy code bases, which kind of segues into our topic today, um, sometimes you have to do code spelunking and you have to do a response or like a uh, a modification to the code that maybe isn't the best way to do it, all things considered. But it's the way you have to do it because of how the like the existing code is, and like making the change to that would be out of out of scope for whatever you're doing. And so having a comment can say like, "I'm aware that this is not the best way to do it, but this is why I had to do it." And then you can reference, you know, like a uh, an explanation of what's going on. So the next person who comes back to that can can see you know your thought process of how you got to that point. The the idea basically comes down to this thought that. The only thing that matters in code commenting is the what, which is mm-hmm. just patently wrong. <laughs> the why factors in heavily to that. For instance, you know, if you're writing code, you could write code that very clearly sets, you know, an active state on some property of uh, a product object to false. But if you read the code, it's like, you, okay, I know it's setting it to false, but why would you set that to false here? That doesn't make any sense. That that shouldn't be false. When the reality is there is a reason for it. And there it's some business decision that comes into play at that step of the process that knowing yeah. what the code is doing isn't the useful part. Because what what will happen is somebody's going to look at that code one day. There won't be a comment saying, here's why this is happening. And somebody's going to delete that code out. Because they're going to be like, oh, yeah. this shouldn't be here. I can't figure out why it's there. And Another beef he has is he says not to write to-do comments. Um, and his reasoning is don't write to-do comments. Instead, maybe just do it. I I think I understand where he's coming from. And I think that instead of doing that, the better thing to do is to, when you identify something, if possible, go to your repository or bug tracker and write an issue for it. Um, if you can't do that, then write the to-do comment, and then write the issue for it later. I don't think doing unrelated code changes to whatever scoped issue you're doing right now, I don't think it's always wise to do because you want to keep your commits to be focused. Um, and I, I'm kind of guilty of doing unfocused commits sometimes myself because it's just easier. But I'm trying to be better about that. And I, I think that sometimes you'll notice things like code that has to be changed. It's unrelated to whatever you're working on. Just You just happen to catch um, it. And- like to do comments, and I I get it. Like that's one that I'd certainly can see. Like yeah, let's maybe not put that in a comment. I agree. Tickets probably the best way to go. But the mm-hmm. other side of this is the way you think as a programmer who is doing his own stuff versus the way you think as a programmer as part of a team, all of whom may be working on the same thing. That that mm-hmm. to do stuff could be very reflective of a signpost for the next dev. Um. You know, if if I've got a junior dev who is following up behind me to do some other work, I might leave that there for them to be like, to do, let's, you know, let's add these parameters to this to, you know, I, I modify the query. And I'll put it there so that when they open up that file, 
they can see exactly where, you know, to do. You know, issue 17 is this. And then they know they don't have to hunt for it. I'm helping them out at that point. It's, yeah, it's kind of a... I have very mixed feelings on it. And I it, he goes on, <laughs> like, at the end of the article, he uh, kind of has a little mea culpa statement about, uh, you know, he understands. And and I get it. I agree. The message is stop writing bad <laughs> comments, but also stop writing articles with clickbaity titles and people will rip <laughs> you to shreds over the, the statement. Oh, I should. That's your totally your your title oh, is representative right of your thesis and i'm gonna complain the same way about a cnn or a fox article that starts with something like that as i am this and that's the lesson right uh give me a good headline but don't stop writing comments just write the right comments write good comments write productive comments write comments that explain things the correct way <laughs> and maintain them afterwards right i think that's the lesson <laughs> <laughs> I am so going to say that right now. Exactly right this second. I'm going to okay, do I'm this. waiting. Do it. Okay. You're not saying anything. Reply. Stop writing so many comments. I'm commenting on that with stop writing clickbait titles. <laughs> Full stop. That Done. I'm okay. sure that won't get us into any trouble at all. It's under my personal name. I take responsibility for my own comments. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> so this actually was a good sort of auspicious timing topic because it does, though, land into uh, today's topic, which gets into how, as a developer, you uh, plan for and deal with technical debt as you work on yeah. something. And so, you know, comments kind of factor into that because comments deal with understanding your code and why it was done, what was done. Um, and so it's that and much more, so to speak. Yeah, I, I've been kind of I, I wanted to do this topic because I've been have this this year, I think maybe the last the last year total. I've been kind of reorienting my understanding of legacy code. I've been learning more about formal refactoring. And about the good and the bad side of technical debt, and um, just all these things that I think any you know career developer will ultimately learn themselves. So, like when you start up your software and it says, "Hey, you owe us ten thousand dollars for this last year of service." That's <laughs> is that what you're talking about? Yes, that is actually the correct definition of technical <laughs> debt. It's it's great. I guess we're done. <laughs> Thanks. All right, we'll see y'all next time. <laughs> How would you define it to make the show longer? Uh, the definition that I like, and I I feel really bad because I I did not think of this, but I can't remember what the source was. Um, so this is not my thoughts, but I don't have the source. Was uh gaining developer gaining developer velocity at the expense of maintainability. So you are writing less than optimal code because it ships quicker. Um. Which sometimes, sometimes makes sense. You know, if you're in a uh, like a heavy competition market or something like that, and you just need to keep shipping code quickly, um, sometimes that makes sense to do that. I, uh, uh, you had a different definition, yeah. Though, I, I, which I think is also. I, I don't like that one so much. <laughs> um, the, the definition I use is the cost associated with the maintenance overhead created over time due to development decisions that might be made differently at a different time or under different circumstances. 
The reason I like mine more is because I don't think technical debt is always caused by making a choice between speed and maintainability. I I completely agree. I mean, I I think that it has multiple definitions. And I think yours is definitely valid, too. I I think back to all kinds of things, but it's like uh, over time, code changes, maybe libraries change, Mm -hmm. maybe um the purpose of a tool changes or is enhanced it's like there's just there's so many things that can play into that that over time you look at code and you're like crap this is not good code anymore i think about wordpress you know wordpress mm-hmm. is uh moving very quickly these days and so i think i think it was jetpack actually recently announced um mm-hmm. the latest version i want to say doesn't support anything less than 5.1 Oh wow! I may be wrong on that. Don't quote me on that. I'm going off memory uh, there, but you know they're doing that in part because they're saying, you know what, we don't want to have to worry about any of the old stuff. We can just cut that code off and and go. It's smart. Yeah, it, it's, honestly, it's yeah. a methodology, and some people yeah. like aggressively uh, cutting stuff off. God knows, you know, we've argued that in browser version support for a long time, and just saying, you know what, we're not supporting IE eleven. I don't care. <laughs> uh, but uh, code is kind of that same way in general, that over time it just it builds up. And at some point you look at it and you're like, eh, I'm going to have to spend five hours working on this to make it better. And even whether you're working for yourself or for a company, those five hours are debt. They are time debt, and, and time is money. And so it all has a cost associated with it. I think I, I think one more definition might be um, technical debt is the additional friction created when you try to add features, and so or rather, technical debt is the thing that adds that friction yeah. when you're trying to add features. So let's add we we want to add a, an advanced filter on a search form, and so we just want to mm-hmm. add this other category. And the problem is that your categories are done in plain text. And they didn't account right. for adding others, you know, so they aren't key yes. or something yeah, like that. Yeah, that's a so great example. You're like, okay, well, we can do it, but it's not as easy as just adding key three. You know, we're going to have to change the yeah. way we index those values and update the existing values so that they're keyed now. That kind of, that's maybe, that's not a great example, but <laughs> it gets the point across. So um, that kind of leads into this, the first part of our show tonight, which is legacy code. Um, and some definitions that uh, I think we both put these together. I'm I'm claiming um, no responsibility for this. You got okay. the driver's wheel. Cool. You take it. <laughs> I think I think these are actually from uh, Martin Fowler's refactoring book, and um, these are code that was here already, code that I didn't write, or code that I don't remember writing, or code that has rotted. What about um, and- code that drunk me wrote? <laughs> Code that drunk you wrote is probably the best code you've ever written. The saddest part of that statement is how <laughs> true it is. <laughs> it's it's a Balmer's Peak, right? I, oh like yeah, CCD. I have I have gotten up in the morning more than once and looked at something I was writing at two a.m. drinking scotch <laughs> and looked at it and been like, huh? <laughs> hey, ain't that something? I I remember one time when I when I was at Cornell. I uh, and I, I worked there for almost eight years, and it was a few years in, and I pulled up some code, and I was just like, 
the fuck, man? Who wrote this? And I look at the diff log, and it's like, it was me three years prior. And I was like, oh. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that is something that uh, that'll make you feel older than thinking about how old Jurassic Park is, let me tell you. <laughs> the, other, uh, the other way to look at it is like code that has started to rot. It may not be rot yet. But it has started, um, or the the edges sure. are nowhere. Or it's maybe like a you know an, an aged steak. You know, it's <laughs> it's you, you know aging a steak is just kind of letting it sit out and, and dry rot, for lack of a better term. But it's still good for a while. <laughs> well, it's it'd be like uh, having WordPress theme that's you know version four point nine or or whatever came right before five point where they're using Gutenberg. Like, you know, it's still basically valid and works, but eh, a little harder to maintain now that everything is moving towards, towards block-based. Yeah. You you things. got into a, a fight over here on Twitter. I didn't look at When was this? Oh, I, it wasn't a fight. It was like you waded into something <laughs> anyway. It, it, was a, it was a friendly discussion. Uh, there was some just, someone had said. Uh, this earlier this spring, it looks like. Yeah. Gen Z Uman. Yeah, so she had posted uh, the uh, the meme of uh, D- Daenerys. Am I saying that right? I don't know. I don't. I don't watch The Simpsons. Oh, from Game of Thrones, the the mother of dragons. Anyways, it's the it's the one of her making that like smirky face, and then the caption is when someone new joins your team and thinks all legacy code is bad and they could do better. Um, and I, I had <laughs> I had some responses to it, and I was like. You know, like sometimes, sometimes legacy code is bad and they made bad decisions and there's maybe plenty of reasons for it. It's justifiable, but, but it was a, it was a discussion about like maybe some different perspectives on what legacy code is and different ways to look at it. And I, I will confess that I, I've had a a change of heart in my uh, opinions about legacy code in general i i think i used to have a more negative opinion of it in general but um there was some good points made on that thread uh, we'll have a, a link in the show notes um but some of the people called it um they said they they don't call it legacy they call it revenue generating code or they call it legendary code and someone else had a thing where they said that all the senior amazon engineers uh have they have to really like take in this concept of respect what's been done before. And I, I think that uh, there's all this talk about like empathy and developers, you know, this year. And, and I think that having an understanding and a, and a concept for why the legacy code exists. And it's not that the code existed because you weren't on the project yet. It's like, there's reasons why it is the way it is. Yeah. And if it's making money, it's not bad. If it works, it's not bad. Well, this I, you know, this idea of the way Amazon approaches it is something that I think I'm, you know, I, I have some empathy for because, like, we've mm-hmm. got back end software for our company that goes back, I mean, honestly, twenty years in some cases. Yeah, uh, not the whole platform, but parts of it certainly. Um, you know, but some of the code only goes back six months. Uh, and this yeah. is stuff that you can't just come in and rip something out or anything like that because you may break payroll and then nobody mm-hmm. gets paid. Uh, there's you know, there's <laughs> that idea that you have to pay attention to what is there and why it was done. And 
it may not have been changed explicitly because of that idea that it's revenue generating. It's code that mm-hmm. could it be written better today? Yes. Does it need to be? Not necessarily. Not at least mm-hmm. not until maybe there is a you know a business reason to do it. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean it's not you know old or whatever the case may be. I was thinking about this and and a metaphor jumped to my mind. It's a lot like cars. I okay. like cars. Um, Aaron and I were sitting here before the show started and we were chatting. I've got behind me. I've got a pile of brake parts for my Triumph that I'm working on. It's massive. Uh, it's yeah. There's a lot of parts. Don't don't move back too far. You'll knock um, it over. Yeah, if, if you hear the <laughs> clatter and the screaming as brake shoes and brake drums fall on my toes. But the idea that let's say a a tri five uh, uh, Chevy, if you've got an old okay. beautiful Chevy Bel Air, that is a legendary car. Mm-hmm. It isn't how we would build a car today. It's sure, not particularly adaptable like if you're gonna if you want to pull out that old blue flame uh uh 235 out of it and put in a modern motor and transmission you don't just take it out and do that you have to make modifications Mm -hmm. you have to make changes you have to make adjustments for you know everything if you're gonna put in you know a 700r transmission and a, a small block 350 or something in there an ls1 you don't just leave the old differential in there you're gonna have to take that out because by putting in a better motor and transmission you're going to destroy the the differential. Um, so you have to put in yeah. better rear end. So it's like, it's that idea makes a lot of sense to me from that. It's like, it, it I doesn't like that. mean that yeah. anything is wrong with that car. It just means that it's an old car that is revered and it still makes money today, getting bought and sold and doing its car <laughs> thing. But to upsample it, to make one of those hot rods that you see on, you know, Meekum or Barrett-Jackson or some of these, you know, there's, there is debt to be paid to get it there. And that's why these cars cost seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 when they're done. You know, it's even if you wanted to do something really simple, like, like so I, I like your analogy because it's the idea that it's all fine and it's, you know, it's perfectly serviceable until you want to add something to it. Like you want to add... Perhaps a CD yeah. player to or a Bel Air. Air conditioning. So if you want to, <laughs> <laughs> even just adding like a car stereo, we have a standard slot size more or less, or at least we did like in the nineties and two thousands. It's getting weird now because every car is a different console, but you know, if you could just swap one head unit in for a different one and most of the time it would just work, but an old, like my dad used to restore cars. And um, so I, I like the slot, in the inside of the console is often like a weird shape. So you can't just pop it in. You have to change things. And and I think that that sort of works with like, when you have a legacy code base, it may be working. It may run just fine. But if you, if the client or the user wants to add new features to it, okay, well, maybe you have to make some changes. And it does. It means that, or it doesn't mean that any of those were bad or wrong decisions. Like, that and that's yeah. the way you know when people look at technical debt or try to address it uh one of the easy things traps to fall into is this idea that you're trying to fix something that was wrong or dumb and that's just not <laughs> true it's just changed over time and, and i mean it doesn't mean it wasn't dumb you know there have been very stupid cars built over the years uh, <laughs> but all that doesn't mean 
that's the sole motivating need behind that kind of change. There, there's a, a hubris in newer developers that reminds me of the Dunning-Kruger effect. You know, the, the one with the yeah. curve where the less you know about something, the more confident you are in what you know, ostensibly. Um, and I think that newer developers will get to a point where everything that they didn't write or everything that isn't written currently is bad. And, or it was like written by dummies or whatever. And I fully admit that was me at one point. And, you know, I, yeah, I, I have had that. Maybe not. They were dummies, but I've certainly felt like, like, Oh, obviously I should like update this and rewrite it to make it different. And, um, occasionally I still fight with that a little bit cause I, I want code to be the best it possibly can. And sometimes it's really hard, <laughs> especially when you're dealing with the friction. Oh of yeah. It. Cause and, and anticipating, you know, cause I think once you get to a certain level of, uh, technique and experience, you start to treat technical debt with the reverence that I think it deserves. And so you, as you build something, yeah. you think about it in terms of not, how is it going to be now? It's how am I going to take care of this when somebody sends me an issue three years from now? And you, right, you try right. to kind of slow some of that down and, and make those very deliberate decisions and even leave space, I think, uh, is kind of the way I approach it. I, sometimes when I know something can or may change, I try to make sure. Because what, like we use a, a model that is, uh, and, and this kind of goes to this idea of the to-do comments from mm -hmm. earlier uh we have what we call the one two in model the okay. first two times we're asked to change something we'll just make a change straight up basically yeah we don't yeah. worry about doing the extra work to make it dynamic or or changeable until we hit that in so after after two right. times we've now entered a state where there is a clear need for something to make it easier to change more frequently so that we don't have to go in and do that every time. And that's where we add that in. I've heard of and that before. It's just yeah. kind of a, uh, it, it's a debt technique to kind of make sure, because there's this other phrase, because uh, every, everybody's got, you know, cliches, maximize the work not done. You know, we're not going to go <laughs> right. balls to the wall and make this crazy, dynamic, flexible piece of code that takes a month to build and then right two percent of the power of it is ever used that that's the uh yagni thing right you aren't gonna need yeah. it yeah. yeah and so that that helps us kind of account for that and adapt to it and it, it makes debt kind of it almost makes that 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 discussion part of our strategy a little bit at that mm -hmm. point two two per two things or i guess it's one bigger thing but um, the one of the things that's changed my perspective on this a little bit is is understanding why decisions were made when they were, and um, sometimes, if especially if you're on a younger product, if there was a lot of rapid iteration early on, when like a like a startup, for example, a startup may have a bunch of founder code or it may have just other other code that was written in the early years of the app, and if it does, they weren't trying to write bad code. They were just trying to rapidly iterate and they didn't have the time to slow down and do refactors or to um, maybe like 
revisit and remodel things. I mean, that's like having the time to do that is kind of a luxury. And if you're in a really hyper-competitive environment, you may not have that as a resource. And again, time is money. And if you are somebody who is doing a startup, there's something. So uh, tonight, actually, uh, and for those of you who wonder about my commitment to the podcast, this is my 10th anniversary. Uh (laughs) tonight um <laughs> we just to be clear we had a discussion before the show and i gave him multiple chances to back out so like i'm not making i know what's this. important in life. i know how to to deal okay. with that um no uh but so my wife and i met the year google bought youtube whoa google bought youtube in 2006 youtube launched in 2005 it took wow. a year for them to launch a product, raise over $8 million in VC, and then sell to Google for over a billion dollars. Do you think their code it's crazy. at that point was the code they wanted it to be? Because there's... A... I am 100% sure it's nothing. Nothing's the well, same yeah, anymore. anymore. certainly. But that, <laughs> yeah. that cycle... And YouTube is a crazy fringe example, but it's still true even at yeah. a small startup that you have to burn hot and bright and fast because if you don't ship that product within a certain time frame that money evaporates and then you're just stuck and then you're stuck with real debt and that need that there's that business component that will always come back to development that it sucks when you're told to push something that isn't necessarily ready because of a timeline yeah but learning how to deal with that is just part of being a developer and, and understanding that why that happens can help you avoid it and help you deal with it. But that, that rapid iteration uh, idea and, and that need to refactor code comes in part from some of that. Yeah. Oh, there's, there's one other point about this. I, I was reminded today of a quote by Sandy Metz. Uh, she's an amazing speaker and developer, and she's just training for software engineers now, and she's awesome. I have a couple of the, her, her talks will be in the show notes. Definitely watch them. But anyways, she has this uh, quote that she says in a couple times. Um, you are never going to know less about your requirements than you do right now. So making decisions about abstractions and larger engineering decisions, you don't want to make it until you absolutely have to. Because anytime before that, you your chances are you don't know as much as you will know later. At best, you're making an educated guess about a requirement. Yeah. I I like to think about it too from the aspect of uh, you know, when it comes to growth and iteration and change over time. Mm-hmm. Imagine, you know, we're using HTML5 these days, you know, we've got fancy new uh, tags and all of this that we can use. I remember writing HTML with all capital letters back in like the <laughs> HTML2, HTML3.2 days with with the blink yeah. tags, with all, you know, all the frame set ugliness. And, you know, we made decisions back then. And we did mm-hmm. things like lay out a website with tables. Why? Yep, I remember because that. Because divs didn't exist. Or well, and CSS didn't CSS exist didn't. Yet. Not yet. Least, it wasn't widespread. Enough. Not in the yeah. CSS came out much right. earlier than people think. I for, I'd have to go back and look. It, it was late nineties, ninety eight, ninety nine when CSS launched. Yeah, but that doesn't mean like the stuff we wrote back in nineteen ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight was bad code. In fact, a lot of right. it was cutting edge, bleeding code. The way we solved problems was revolutionary in some cases. 
Okay, wait, here's here's a cool throwback for all of you younger listeners. So when you wanted to have text, uh, maybe you have a big block, right? And you want to have text pushed down, say, 30 pixels from the top. The way we did it back then was to have the text inside of a block level element inside of the parent block. And then immediately before the text, you use a one pixel transparent GIF called spacer.gif. And you set the height of that as the, yeah. the height property to be 30 pixels. There, there were a lot of novel solutions. And, you know, it was <laughs> it was us testing the system, basically. And would we do that that way today? Absolutely not. But that doesn't make the decisions we made wrong or stupid or dumb. Mm-hmm. They were innovative. They were daring. They were challenging. And mm-hmm. the same way that we look at that now, is I look at things like jQuery. I'm making, yeah. I've been making a hard push in our development cycles to eliminate jQuery from our vernacular. I want vanilla JS across the board now because the, the reasons okay. that jQuery existed are no longer true for the most part. jQuery simplified the, and streamlined yeah. and unified an experience across browsers that were inconsistent, but a lot of those inconsistencies don't exist anymore. It also made Ajax a lot easier. It, it made Ajax way easier. But now there's yeah. no reason you can't do that on your own or make your right. just make a quick function. There there are polyfills and stuff you can just include on it on its own yeah. and have that if you needed to. That's all vanilla JS. And so I, I think of jQuery very much like that. Like you're gonna see jQuery in code for years to come. But mm-hmm. there is gonna be a point where folks are gonna start looking at that and being like, Why why didn't <laughs> you just do this in TypeScript? Right. You know, like right. that it's gonna be that kind of thinking. And it's not because jQuery was the wrong choice. It was the right choice yeah. when those people were writing that code. Um, or those folks were still learning JavaScript because jQuery does make JavaScript easier for new people. Yep. It abstracts <laughs> things. So that's, uh, I, I like that word hubris. Don't fall into that hubris. Uh, so from this idea of technical debt with legacy, with, uh, legacy code bases, I found this thing called ADRs and and now I forget where I found out about. Oh, it was from that thread from that Twitter thread from earlier. So ADR is a architectural design record. Yeah. Or architectural decision record. Yeah. Decision. Um, yeah. And so what this is, 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 um, kind of a, like a written chronicle of the discussions and decisions that were made about the application and why, so that in the future you could go back and look and have some kind of frame of reference. And it's not like in comments per se, it's like a separate document. And there's a, there's a, a GitHub page. Yeah. It's adr.github.io. Yeah. And, and there's a repo by that this guy, Joel Henderson has got, we'll have both of these linked in the show notes that they've got a ton of resources from examples, you know, structure for these documents um and and how to apply them i because this was the first i had heard of it too when when uh, aaron had found this and so i got to looking at it and i i immediately latched on to it because like i said earlier the reason i think code commenting is important that process of communication and documentation i think is important and valuable and this gives some structure to that because documentation let's face it it's really time consuming um, there's a lot of documentation that you're going to write in your life 
that will never be looked at by another human ever again. But <laughs> probably that exercise, I think, is really important because when we get back to these things, like, why did I choose to use jQuery on this project? Well, mm-hmm. I needed a framework to help me with animations and streamline my Ajax uh, calls. These things can then be documented so that if you aren't the person maintaining it in the future and they get in there, they can pull that up and see, oh, here's the reasoning. Those reasons have now changed so we can maybe, you know, do something else. Uh, yeah. That's, I think, one of the big values there. Because here's, here's the thing about technical debt. There isn't a single point in time where you look at code and you're like, yep, this code needs refactored. The, this idea of, of debt code rot, these ideas, I think about it like a frog in boiling water where it's such a slow burn kind of change to code over time that at some point you just know that you're past due and then you want to go through <laughs> and fix it and do something about it. And then you need to know why and, and what is what is it going to affect? What were those processes that led to that? There's the the, the Sorites paradox of um, moving, a, I think I'm saying the name right, moving, moving additional grains of sand onto a pile. Right. At what point At what point does it become a pile or a heap or a, okay. something larger if you, if you just move one grain at a time? Yeah. It's, it's a hard question to answer, and there, there really isn't a good answer, but this can help you in that process at least because you can be like, I'm going to change this. You pull up the ADR, you look at it and you see, oh, well, they had to do it this way because of uh, an infrastructure decision that was made prior to that even. And if I change it, it's going to impact this other stuff. So I'm going to, I'll wait. Because we lack that a lot as developers. I want to make sure I mention, um, although Jill Parker Henderson has that most current GitHub repo, I believe he references the original author of this concept, which was Michael, it's either Nygaard or Nygaard, N-Y-G-A-R-D, um, who this seems to be the person who kind of pioneered, originally made the, yeah, like sort of came up with this idea of doing an ADR. That That's sort of like the history of it, but it seems like uh, the this other repo is the one that's maybe more actively carrying the torch on that. I like the idea of just making this part of your process too because if you're already using Mm -hmm. like a Git repo or something like that or if you've got Confluence or some other uh, wiki or something like that to document your stuff Mm -hmm. then this is just a matter of putting together some markdown and including it as part of the completion criteria for work that you're doing for a project. Um, And it's worth mentioning like an ADR is not geared towards a ticket. Like it's not geared towards work. It's geared towards right. architecture and the decisions that go into that. This this is even includes things like we chose to use this database or this platform right. or this framework because of these reasons. And then just saying why. And that way, when maybe the original team is gone or moved on to different parts of the organization, newer people can look back on that and then can answer the questions like, why the hell did they do this? Like if you've ever looked at a database and seen a column for date. But mm-hmm. but it's being stored as a string instead of a right instead of a date string, <laughs> and it's like oh, okay. But there may be a good reason for that that you aren't privy to. And again, that idea of I'm just going to change that. I can make that better. I'll I'll recast it <laughs> and update the, the structure. And then you realize again you broke payroll. 
You know, it's that that's a that's a great example of why comments might be necessary. Yeah. <laughs> if you had if you had to add something that was like, well, we have to treat the data as a string and then parse it in this way because it started that way in the table, like the the approach you're taking to it, there might be a super easy approach to use it as like a date time object, but you just can't do it. Yeah. Or, you know, if you're sitting at a table with folks and, and you're using MySQL and, mm-hmm. and you've been using MySQL for 15 years and everybody's like, you know, if we could do this a whole lot better if we moved over to like Oracle or MS SQL. Or Postgres. No, nobody ever says those words, but maybe they would and you're like yeah Mm -hmm. we we didn't do that because we couldn't afford it and so you've got a record that says yeah we we went to mysql because we understand that there are limitations to it but it was free and that was the most cost effective or you know postgres yes that is another option and to be fair that is a completely valid reason totally oh yeah absolutely yeah like it's it's this isn't it's not like a blame game or anything it's just it is what it is, and you just have to accept. Remember that. when I said earlier that you know, like code comments, you, you use code comments to answer the why sometimes. Yeah, code, yeah. code can't answer the why. It is incapable of why. It is only <laughs> capable of what. ADRs help answer all of it. They can answer the who. Yeah. They can answer the what. The when is an important part of that. The why is an important part of that. So having that that decision record as part of your documentation helps you understand all of that big picture, because ultimately if you are working at a company or you're working for yourself, whatever code you're writing is going to have business decisions driving it. Yeah. Revenue generating code. And so the business logic is something that can change at a company much more quickly than code can. And you may run into code that doesn't make sense and you don't know why. And it may be perfectly valid to change it because you're looking at it and you're like, we don't work this way anymore. Why would we, you know, <laughs> why would we be logging time in these increments when we have real time, uh, you know, a time clock in, in our tracking system? And yeah. you pull that and you see that lets you justify then when you go in and say, hey, we found this code back in 2004, this stuff was built out this way because of this. We've gotten rid of those. We would like to change this now because we're worried that it may introduce a bug later. Like, that's an important decision-making yeah. process, but without the design record behind it, you're guessing. And I, uh, I, you may have mentioned this already, but um, having an ADR is, it's a process. It's not like a product. Yeah. This is, you don't, you don't get the ADR software and then, do stuff in it. You can use anything. You can use Notepad. You can use um, Wiki. You can use uh, co- you mentioned Confluence. You can use whatever you want to use for collecting things. I think the only the only requirement is that you be able to easily edit it, and maybe having like different pages would probably be helpful. Yeah, totally. And the ability to maybe link across them would probably also be good. And um, maybe something that tracks like the version history or authorship would also be good. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, it's, it's really software agnostic or even <laughs> medium agnostic. You could do it on a notepad if you want, like a physical one. Yeah, you could physically <laughs> the have a, the notebook on the shelf that your team <laughs> refers to. Right. Yeah. It, it's just about documenting information and decision-making, um, which yeah. is something that isn't, we don't teach well, we don't explain well. 
but has, I think, obvious value in a business setting because it does protect like, and I give credit to the folks I work with because they are some of the smartest developers I've ever had the pleasure of working with. And there are times where we can run into code where it's like, Ooh, we don't do this anymore. Can we get rid of it? Or why, you know, that, or mm-hmm. the, the debate that just happened, the, the funny thing uh, that factors into this um, is we're getting ready to build a new tool. And the, the question okay. we asked was, do we do react or do we do angular? Huh. We could, do it one way or the other and we don't have like a real horse in the race as to which one they both will do the job so which one do we pick and we (laughs) you know had conversations everything and the thing is like we've already invested as a team in angular outside of my like my particular team but Mm -hmm. you know there's that decision making process that we don't have documented so i had to just keep asking the question to find it out um, and those things in those environments can make it challenging because then somebody may go and make, you know, just be like, I'm going to, I'm going to bring in Ruby and I'm going to do this project in Ruby. And everybody then's mm-hmm. like, we avoid Ruby because we can't run X, Y, or Z, you know? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I know that's a silly kind of example, but decisions get made and helping, especially new developers, when you bring in these new developers and you can say, okay, you're coming into a system. The system has existed for 10 years. It was here before you, and it's going to be here after you. And before we let you loosen our code base, you need to read some of this stuff to understand, because we know you're going to look at this stuff and be like, well, why are you still using InfoBasic over here and COBOL over here? Mm -hmm. There are reasons. (laughs) And they aren't great reasons, but they aren't good enough to change at this point. So here's the stuff that explains that. You could you could even use just an audio recording. Like if you have um, meetings where you're making... You know, like you'll sit down and make decisions about design. You could just put a recorder in the room and record those. And then you at least have something on hand for those decisions. I, I just, I think it's about an archive about a step, like documenting your process. So that, that helps the historical side of technical debt. ADRs are a preventative measure, right? They help explain mm-hmm. and help you understand and help you safeguard for change. Sure. But then how, because you do deal with that, you have to address it at some point. So where do we start yeah. on what's like the best starting point for something like that? Okay, so this is the stuff that I've been like really learning about in earnest the last six months-ish. Um, it's a uh, refactoring and I'll get into the definitions in a minute. But like, I think there's a quote that Martin Fowler who wrote the book, literally wrote the book, Refactoring. I have it right here. I have the uh, Refactoring 2nd Edition by Martin Fowler. I also have the Refactoring Ruby Edition, which uses Ruby. This one uses JavaScript, just like vanilla JavaScript. Um, the first edition used, I believe, Java. Did, did that have like a built-in bookmark too? Did I see a... It it does. Yeah. It's, a, it's a really nice, a, like it's a really nicely... Nicely, nice high quality book. <laughs> it is, and for real. I like, I'm very happy with this. <laughs> um, but there's a quote by Kent Beck, which is, uh, make, make the change easy. Sometimes this is hard and then make the easy change. And it might be a slight paraphrase there, but, but that's kind of the basis of what refactoring is. What? And, and they say, <laughs> Ex- explain <laughs> like, that to me simpler. Okay. So say that you have a drop down list of states, but sometimes it's also like regions, right? Okay. On your on your app, 
and then they want to add they want to change it somehow they want to make it uh you know map to zip code or whatever okay so like or they want to add a new region or they want to add a new state there might be friction that you encounter when trying to add that feature and so what he's saying is the first thing you do is you you change the existing code you leave the behavior as is but you change the existing code implementation so that adding new things becomes easier. So you, you're, you're at the point where you are aware enough of the requirements of the direction this code has to go that you can kind of revisit or revision how, how it's written. And then once you've done that, because sometimes it can be challenging, then you've now made the change easier to make and so now you just make the thing that you wanted to do originally. Okay, okay. So this sounds kind of like the one-two-in thing I was talking about a little bit. Yes. Let me. Yes. I think I have a, an yeah. example of this and let me see if the way I do this meets okay. the definition. So what I do, if I run into old code, what I have a habit of doing is, especially like when it's embedded in something, I will pull all of that old, co old code out and I yeah. will put it in a file. And I okay. will add a code comment <laughs> into that <laughs> file that says, you know, this it was extracted from such and such. It was moved out because of these problems or whatever. I can't take it out because like you were saying, it's sometimes yeah. not in scope to spend five extra hours co totally rewriting something that's unrelated to the work you're doing. Right. But what I'll do is I abstract it out. Then in the good yeah. code, I just put a pointer to it i reference just the one thing yeah know, so i'll parse in that file and then i'll have another code comment that will say yeah something to the effect of hey this is what we're doing this is why this is abstracted out and then i'll make tickets or whatever the case may be but i try to simplify my life by taking everything old and getting it out of my way it's still so, there it's so still what you used but it's just a level sort of away kind of what what you described there sounds like the code smell. Uh, I'll get to that in a second. Um, either large class or long function, and one of the remedies or refactoring techniques for those is extract class or extract function. So, like what you described is one of the techniques of this. So, uh, so I have done the book. I don't need to read it. <laughs> yeah, you're an expert. I don't know why I'm even talking about this. You already know how. Awesome. To do Show's this. over. Congratulations. <laughs> we win. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, that makes sense though. I like that. So, uh, so Martin Fowler um, defined he. So, I uh, a definition here: refactoring is different than restructuring. So, like I, I've used the term refactoring in the past very generally, just to mean like, oh, I'm just changing how my code is. I'm improving it, and it's not. It's that's not the same thing. That would be what he might call restructuring. So, and is so, what I described is that a restructure because I moved it well no but you, you actually you you kept the behavior the same yeah. right you just changed how it was written internally yes so that's that's, that's a, refactor. a refactor okay yes that, that's that's actually i'm glad you mentioned that that's a one of the key differentiators in refactoring is that when you're changing you're kind of like you're going into the car and you're like you're uh maybe putting a new engine in or um i don't know changing the seats out or whatever but they still function as seats or this the engine still makes the car move forwards when you push the gas pedal or the only difference is is how it works i, I think a good internal. example there's like batteries old yeah, yeah. old cars were six volt and so what people did was to get them to 12 volt 
they put in 12 volt batteries and then put a giant fucking resistor in line that cuts it down to six volt for everything else. Yeah. But then everything else has to change. They've abstracted away the battery voltage, so to speak. And they've they've got a little thing that just takes care of that translation so that they don't have to change anything else. Exactly. That is, that's a great example. Yeah. Man, I'm on it. I got this. You are. Car analogies work for everything, apparently. Uh, so the other thing, the other part of refactoring too, it's 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 the changing the implementation and not the behavior. And also there's this idea of code smells. And these are like objective things that have names and descriptions, and it describes very specific things. And each code smell has common refactoring remedies that you can apply to it, which also have names. And I, I have a couple, I have a whole I'm, list. Here. I'm told that I'll I just smell read a couple frequently, of them. so I... <laughs> like that kind of smell that gets in your mouth and you can't really get it out right away like you can like you can almost like eat yeah, it yeah yeah like, like you chew yeah. on it it's it's a chewy smell <laughs> so some code smells from the back of the book here they're like a uh, data clumps uh duplicated code feature envy insider trading lazy element long parameter list middleman uh mysterious name Shotgun surgery, that's a fun. Shotgun surgery is when you're making an edit and you have to make the same change in a whole bunch of different places in your application. Hmm. Find and replace. Yeah, exactly. If you have to do find and replace on the same string and you're replacing it with the same other thing, and it's not just like renaming a method, or maybe it is just renaming a method, but it's when you're having to change the same thing in a bunch of places, that's shotgun that, surgery. How many of these are there? Uh, One, two, three... I'd say probably about 25. Oh, so yeah. So there's like a lot then. Yeah, yeah. I'll show you the... There's like... Yeah. kind of grouped into rows. I'm showing Michael on the webcam. So each of these, uh, for example, Feature Envy, the remedies or refactoring techniques to fix that, uh, they suggest either move function or extract function. So like the process of learning to do this is you, you first learn how to identify the code smells and then... Once you've identified which code smell you're looking at, you look up at the table and you say like, okay, these are the techniques that I would use to resolve that. And so the uh, chapter one in the book, he goes through, or maybe it's chapter two, it's very early though. He refactors like a kind of a micro app, just like a small section of an application. And and the the process that he goes through is he looks at it, he identifies one code smell, and then... Uh, this is all done with a passing test suite. So he has a green test suite that tests the important behaviors. And then he identifies the code smell. He applies the remedy, confirms that the tests still pass, and then like commits his change. And now he does the same thing again. Find a new code smell, apply the remedy, make sure the tests pass, commit the change, and so on. And it's just this thing iteratively. At any given point, you can stop and your app is still stable. So you don't have to fully refactor something. You don't have to take it all the way. You can do it just enough so that you can apply your change to it. Yeah, this and this emphasizes the importance of why testing is. Yeah, so yeah, tests important. are absolutely critical. Absolutely critical to this. There, there's a um, if your thing, if whatever language you're using doesn't have automated testing built in, there is a an approach called uh, I, I forget what it's called, but basically it's a thing where. Uh, you treat your program like a black box given this input. If I give the program two, it spits out five. Yeah, T- like and TDD, then, and that, that's test-driven development. 
sort of, but you're not writing automated testing. You're just writing a thing that just runs your program with a very specific input and a very specific yeah. output. And that's all it's looking for. Um, so it just basically is just sort of a smoke test to make sure that you're not breaking your program in between right. your changes. You're keeping the behavior the same. Um, the other thing he talks about in this too is um, changing hats. So he has his refactoring hat and then he has his like development hat. And so the refactoring hat, when he's doing that, he only changes existing code implementation. He doesn't change behavior. And when he's wearing his other hat, he will only change behavior. He won't change implementation. I imagine that's kind of maybe an advanced programmer technique to, to know when you're wearing which hat and keep your activities to only doing one or the other. But that's kind of what uh, what he advises is the best way to approach this. You know, it, what I like about this idea of like code smell, A, I like the name. Uh, right. It's because it, yeah. it has like a an analog to what I feel like I do when I see bad code in, in practice. Like yeah. <laughs> it, it has some kind of relation there. And that phrase we used earlier, like code rot. Yeah. When, yeah. when code starts to rot, it will develop a certain smell. And one of those smells will be in that book. I was really surprised. Cause I think as a developer, you will develop these techniques. Mm -hmm. I, I think we all kind of do this and we see code and we know when code's bad or we know when something isn't as optimal as it could be as we've gotten, yeah. gotten more experience or learned more. But I never stopped to think about like compartmentalizing those concepts into discrete types. And the idea that there are yeah, 25 of them is kind of surprising. It's it's a really formalized process. And and it's really cool. There's, there's some great talks that I'll be, put in the show notes where you can watch someone, I, I swear this is more interesting and exciting than it sounds like when I'm describing it, but you watch someone like Sandy Metz or one of these other people do a refactoring live. Like, you know, she's going through and she's like, okay, well, this is why, this is what I would see here. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to move this over here and then we're going to change this. And, and she's running like, uh, you know, analytics against it the whole time to like kind of see how it's the complexity is changing over time and then the end result is completely different looking than the beginning but it runs the same yeah. and it's it's just it's so fascinating and, and it's just it's just beautiful there, there's just something beautiful really code. satisfying about watching somebody condense 50 lines of code down to 20 you know yeah you yeah can. exactly um going back to earlier and, and talking about this idea of code commenting and things <laughs> You know, one of the things I see where commenting comes in handy is explaining advanced developer techniques that are in practice. And one of the examples mm -hmm. that I've thought about is like JavaScript short-circuiting. If you're not familiar with JavaScript short-circuiting, yeah. it's this idea of taking a conditional, so like an if statement. And instead of having if this curly bracket do these things in curly bracket whatever, all you do is say something like is valid and and function name and yeah. that's it you you condense you know eight lines down to one and yeah i remember the day i learned about javascript uh short circuiting because i was trying to do a uh a, a, a template literal uh in a file in some jsx i didn't know about short circuiting i didn't know that was a thing i just hadn't ever ran into it um i'd never learned it because i'm i'm one of those folks that i'm learning some of this advanced javascript having done old JavaScript for a long time. And so one of my other coworkers was like, well, why don't you just short circuit it? And I said, 
because I don't what? want to blow this box up. I don't know why I would try to <laughs> ground something that shouldn't be grounded. That doesn't make sense. He says, no, just write it this way. And I looked at it. I'm like, why would I write it that way? That doesn't even make sense. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's with, uh, the article that you shared had the example like where instead of saying if this if name if like name is set then do this thing to name make the name uppercase otherwise do something else yeah. right that was the thing and so it would be like name and and name uppercase and this comes in like you know there's a lot of shorthand technique that's out there for different things that people don't learn about that or, or even css take css you know there's a lot of mm-hmm. shorthand technique for things like background you know, you don't have to say oh, yeah. background image, background path, background clip, background position. You can smash all of those together into one background statement. Yeah. It's hard to understand that stuff without comments and things like that. But you can but if you when you watch somebody who is advanced go into code and look at stuff like that <laughs> and be like, Oh yeah, we're gonna take all this stuff that you've done line by line and like you've enumerated a lot of stuff and it's like you get it. Enumerating it is useful and good and it helps you learn it, especially when you are getting into that stuff. But once you get into, you know, advanced developer land, you're like, yeah, let's just, let's shorthand that. Let's smash it all together. It's wild to watch people do that. I saw, the first time I saw a SAS document and it had like a huge sum of like comments and like almost like a directory of everything that was in that like SAS yeah. suite. I, it was like, oh man, I like, it's, I'm so glad that it had that in there. Um, but so, uh, comments is one of the code smells <laughs> and here's what, here, here's what Martin Fowler has to say about it. And I really like how he writes this here. He says, don't worry. We aren't saying that people shouldn't write comments in our olfactory analogy. Comments aren't a bad smell. Indeed, they are a sweet smell. The reason we mention comments here is that comments are often used as a deodorant. It's surprising how often you look at thickly commented code and notice that the comments are there because the code is bad. And he goes on further about what you might do with that. But I, I like how he says that because it's, that's, you know what sounds I mean? not just fair, but I mean, it does, it gets to, I think what uh, Brian Norlander with his article, I, think, I mean, that's yeah. what he was getting at effectively. And I, I do, I, I, I'm a big fan of metaphors. Mm-hmm. I'm like a shark. And <laughs> I think that one does, it, it works very well. I mean, well. like if you don't, if you don't use a metaphor, you'll like, drown. Well, Yes, exactly. No, what? We all, because I get up every morning. When I get up in the morning and I put on deodorant, I don't stink. I smell good. I just get out of the shower. I'm I'm done. I'm preparing for the day. But that's the thing. The putting on the deodorant is your preparation for the day. And, right. And yeah. it gets you through. And by the end of the day, if you've gone outside and you've worked and you've sweated, if it's doing its job, it's still going to help cover that up. But it's not going to change the fact that if somebody looked at you, they know you're hot. And (laughs) if you look at old code or bad code or code that just has rotted a little bit over time, and you see that, you're like, I get it. I can read the comments. I see what's happening. But Mm -hmm. I can tell that it's using a technique that we can do better at now. Um, There's – to Brian Norlander's credit, he did quote uh, Martin Fowler, specifically this book that I'm holding in my hand. In his article, and it, the quote that he used was, when you feel the need to write a comment, first try to refactor the code so that any comment becomes superfluous. And a couple of the examples he gave were like to that end. Um, well, like we were saying earlier, like the spirit of most of his article, I, I think I agree with, but just not the clickbait title. So <laughs> so what can what can we 
do with this information now that we have it though like there is okay there's we, we have these things we have ideas we have code smells we have this understanding of it can be bad code it can be old code it can be many things that need changed uh so there there's a talk uh in, in the show notes by Sandy Metz called get a whiff of this. And it's specifically about code smell. And she talks about like, you know, the, the different names and she focuses it on um, like a small set, maybe like 10 of them. And she shows some examples on how to deal with them. And then there's another one called all the little things. I, actually, we just watched that with my uh, work today um, where she goes through the, it's called the gilded rose kata. Uh, and kata is kind of an appropriative term, so I, I tend not to use it, but that's the name of it. It's a, a kata um, is like a technique. A, a kata is a, I mean, it's borrowing from like martial it's arts. A, it's like a, a practice. It's yes, it's like a, it's a drill that you can repeat uh, over and over again. Yeah, drill. I like that. Achieve word. perfection. That's, a, that's yeah. a good word for it. A drill. But like in in martial arts, a kata, a kata form would be one that like you. It's not practical. Like you wouldn't formally do it but it covers all the the range of motions and movements that your body might need to do when applying the the underlying technique and it can you could kind of meditate on the movement to get a deeper understanding for it and i guess maybe some of these might like i i kind of think that once you've done gilded rose for example if you've done it once you probably are going to approach it the same way the next time so i don't think it's necessarily repeatable however it's good practice. It's like a, a problem set, sort of like from a math textbook or physics or something. It's a problem set that you can use to help learn these techniques. You can learn how to solve them better in real life in your actual code base. So how does Gilded um, Rose work then? Oh, it's... uh, You're going to have to watch the talk. The sample... She, so she does it in Ruby. And um, Ruby is thankfully very easy to read. So if, even if you don't know any Ruby, it'll still make yeah, sense. Yeah, sure it is. <laughs> But it begins, I think it's like a 20 or 30 line conditional statement, like if, else, if, else, if, else. Just a huge block of it. And then the the resulting code that she comes up with is maybe like 15 lines or something total. It's really short. But it's it's a lot easier to read and ultimately modify at the end. But basically, the, the what the Gilded Rose is, it's... Um, it's a fake code base that was written by someone specifically for this purpose. It uses a bunch of like weird terms, which I think are from World of Warcraft. It's it has all these different like item names, and each of them they they tick. They they either increase or decrease in quality each time the tick method is called. And so there's a whole bunch of like branched conditionals at the very beginning that's just covering all these things. And what you want to do is you're supposed to add in a new item type to it. And as it stands, adding in the new item type, I guess you could do it just like the other ones are, but the idea is you, you want to do it better. So there's there's that. There's a if you look for um, like refactoring practice, there's some different like repositories and things that have it. Basically, what it looks like is you get kind of a starter app that may that may have some automated tests, and then you kind of like iteratively like improve it. Um, towards some goal. Like there's one that I found that's like a babysitter thing where it's like they describe the the criteria for how the app is supposed to act and then they decide they describe what you're supposed to add to it. There's a another book also by Sandy Metz called um 99 Bottles. Uh I want to say 
it's 99 bottles of object-oriented programming but um the the first chapter is it it gives you there's a, a repository you download and then it has a series of automated tests that run sequentially and each one of them you start out with an empty pro an empty class and you have to just add just enough code to make the tests pass and then the approach that you take to it um there's a couple different ways you can approach it um she does a talk where she kind of talks about different ways that you can tackle this but um have that in the show notes too. I'm just kind of rambling now. No, I'm, I'm letting you. No, there's a. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I there's an article over at uh, Lunar Logic that we'll have a link to uh, by uh, Arthur. Ar- oh, awesome. Arthur Chop, I think. I apologize again. Names are not my strong suit at this point. Um, but he went through the Gilded Rose Kata and yeah. basically wrote up like his experiences with it and and where he found it to be helpful and things like that. So I'll have that in the show notes too, as just kind of an explainer, as one of those. Uh, oh, you did it in Ruby. Yeah, it was all, cool. Yeah, the, the same Ruby library, the same like it used her code base. Um, so it's a good like it's a good sort of branch uh, branching topic. Uh, from there, cool. what I like to do, and this is nowhere near as complicated or anything like that, but like when I'm in GitHub or uh, we use Jira at work, we just have a label called Tech Debt. And so when we yeah. run into work that we know is going to need extra stuff later, we log that ticket. Like we were saying earlier, you make the ticket. That's step one in, in fixing code. And we label it tech debt so that we know that, like, this isn't work that we need to do because it will make it functionally better necessarily. But it's work we need to do because if we're going to ever expand on it or add to it or do other things, we need to make it better first. Um, and yeah. then we can, when we do sprint planning, we can sit there and say, okay, do we have time this week to bring up some tech debt? And we'll try to spin, you know, if, mm-hmm. if one developer can spend an hour that week fixing the tech deck, tech debt, that, tech deck, <laughs> um, I switched earlier. I didn't say it, but I switched over to the Burai from High West Distillery. <laughs> uh, uh, if somebody can take on one of those tech debt tickets, um then you know that's all you can do it's just like paying down any debt you just have to make a regular payment to it It doesn't have to be a lot if you only ever make minimum payments you're probably not going to get real far but at least it's not getting bigger (laughs) i think that there is a lot of value to be gained in prioritizing even just a small percentage like if you just said one day a week or even like half day of, of the week or something is allocated for the whole team or to certain people or some number of people to put towards working on technical debt issues. Um, I, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to solve all the problems, but you should make it a habit of solving some of them or just do like one day a month, you know, like it's like 5% of your time. That's where like we've talked about, you know, let's find a sprint where it's like in Mm -hmm. our low period, so to speak. And let's take that sprint and just schedule technical debt and see how much of what we can mm-hmm. get done. Let's all focus on that. One sprint yeah. is not that much. You know, we our sprints are a week long, so we got 52 of them. And so if we said yeah. just one week, 40 hours uh, per person is going to be spent towards... It's like it's like spring cleaning. Yeah, it's a, it's a cleaning thing. Yeah. It's keeping those tickets out of your backlog um, because mm-hmm. it is. It's it's a rot thing. And if you if that epic that you've got starts loading up with technical debt tickets, at some point you're going to look at that and you're going to be like, crap, we've got 200 tickets in here, guys. That's that's not <laughs> a good sign. And it starts coming up in conversations. You do sprint planning the next week, and it's like, oh, yeah, we're gonna, we need to add these things to you know, a landing page generator or to an email system. And you're like, oh, yeah, but 
we can't do that because we haven't addressed this stuff. <laughs> and the more of those you have, the more that smell starts factoring in to those discussions, and you'll notice it. You will start to notice the smell. The advantage of the refactoring process in that book is that if you are only able to intermittently do it like that, like if you only have one week out of the year that you can devote towards technical debt, you don't want to get to Friday and have code that's like only three quarters done that you can't commit yet because then the whole week is lost, right? So with refactoring, like at every iteration, and they're like very small iterations, each remedy you apply results in a stable application. So you can um, you can really do that and just make you know one week of changes to it that improve stuff, and you end up with a stronger app because of it. We uh, also use this methodology of leave it better than you found it, mm. and that doesn't mean refactor tons of code or anything like that. It just means that when you're in code, even if it's one line, you know, like and, mm -hmm. and this is one where I run into stuff where it's like variables, right? You see a variable yeah. set, and that variable got set because you were using it in 12 different places. But over time, you've <laughs> reduced the usage of that variable. And at some point, you realize you look at a file, you're like, we're setting a variable, and it's never getting used now. I I have a habit of doing that with um, very shortly named variables. Like if it's uh, – maybe like it's referring to temperature, but they use the letter T to represent temperature. I'll just replace it. If it's just all like in a small little five-line – block or something i'll just replace it with a longer named uh variable god help them if they named it temp <laughs> <laughs> right exactly i think that's actually a code that's actually a technique is that is it. in our code base of using like underscore temp at, to yeah. set things that end up putting out null that's a whole other story but uh but no <laughs> it's uh like doing something like that once you realize that just delete it doesn't matter if that's related to the work you're doing delete that one line and you have now left that sure. code better than you found it. And there are a lot of easy ways. It doesn't mean you have to rewrite 30 lines of code. But there are a lot of times you can look at something and, and just notice, oh, man, we could swap a couple of these things out real fast. And I'll just leave that better. And then when you do your code commit and put in your review, just leave a comment that says, I left this better than I found it. And you're good to go. <laughs> uh, if it's been commented well and is written well, then it should be obvious why you did that. What I think that emphasizes is what we say a lot in web development, which is that technical resolving technical debt is not a goal. There is yeah. no finish line to it. No. It's, it's a process. Yeah. Co your code is going to constantly rot. Any code you write today is worse than the code you will write five years from now. <laughs> it just is. Yeah. Well, it's like I said before, like you, you, you know – that you know the least about your requirements now than ever. Right. Than you yeah, ever absolutely. Will. Yeah. Libraries change, techniques change, technology changes. JavaScript. You you know what's funny about JavaScript is the reason why that has come up so much in these conversations is JavaScript used to never change, and that was the problem. Mm -hmm. Now we get a release every year. Yep. We didn't used to do that before <laughs> 2015. Before 2015, JavaScript released when it wanted to every few years. Now we get a release every year, and it's really changed the way people think about JavaScript. Um, that process and the way we approach it, it's a, it is a cycle. It's a maintenance cycle, and it is just something to kind of keep in mind. And, and you want to keep your debt to a minimum, but mm -hmm. you're always going to be carrying some of it over. There's no yeah. way around that. And, and success is measured by growth and shrinkage of that uh, ratio is maybe the way to think about it. 
and I think instilling in part of your team culture, you know, like that, um, that you're just going to, you're making intent to constantly be paying down some of it over time. I, I think, I really think that there's multiplicative benefits from it because as you're replacing painful things, you're going to be able to iterate faster because you're going to have less friction to make changes. So there's, it's not just about making it look pretty or cleaning up or whatever. Like there are tangible benefits. And if you sit down in your sprint planning or whatever planning you happen to do for your process, even if you're just yourself, if all you are concerned with is always building new stuff and never reviewing old stuff, mm -hmm. that's the first sign that you are setting yourself up for a future problem. There mm -hmm. should always be that process of even casual review. Just relook at something. Make sure it's still the best way to do it. Make sure... You still feel good about the code you're writing. Can it be more performant? Can it use a, a faster library? Can it do something else? That that cycle is something that we all have to get used to and understand that if you find debt, that is not a sign of any kind of failure. Right. Yeah. It's uh, it's sometimes if you see that, you may be able to look at it and consider like, what do I know now that I didn't know then that I can change? Right. One of the hardest things to do as a developer, I think, is to... Look at code you wrote five years ago <laughs> and be okay with understanding that, oh, yeah, I, man, I would not write that that way now. <laughs> and if you can, once you get to that point, that's where I think you've really kind of matured as a professional where you can say, oh, yeah, man, let's make sure we deal with that because, boy, I didn't know these things then, but that's okay. I think you should... You should, if you see that, you should frame it to yourself as like, look at this. I wrote crappy code and it still worked. Yeah. <laughs> if, if nothing else, it, it is a sign of how far you have progressed. Because if you ever look back at your code and you never say that to yourself, yeah, that means that you aren't getting better. And that's a problem. That's the thing you should be worried about. Looking back at old code. If you look back at a code you wrote a year ago and it terrifies you, <laughs> that's great because that means you have really learned a lot in that year and that's a good sign. In other words, you should always think. <laughs> I used to I used to tell my when I when I was TAing for OCAM, I used to always tell my students to like I want you guys to ask questions and be wrong as much as possible because it means that you're learning. <laughs> you, you don't you don't learn if you're never wrong. Unless you're asking the same question over and over. Well, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> Folks, kick back. Wait just a minute. We'll be back here. And uh, I don't know. What else? Things? Notes? Things. Cool things. Cool things. The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. 
To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. Everybody, thanks for stopping with us this week. I hope you enjoyed the topic. Uh, This is episode 38. Uh, 39 and 40 are coming up in the next month, and we've got some guests coming up. We're going to be talking about dark patterns with some cool folks. We're going to be talking with some other stuff about hosting and things like that. I hope you're going to enjoy it. I think you will. Um, So stay tuned. We'll be talking more about that as things progress. Uh, Other than that, stop by the website. We've tweeted about it uh, by this point, maybe. Uh, If not, I will be soon. (laughs) But there will be a post on the site... uh, if you couldn't make it to the accessibility summit and you wanted to see my talk by chance, um, I don't know why you would. I don't know why anybody would, but if you did, uh, there will be a post on the drunkenux.com uh, site. Uh, I've got the slides and audio from that posted. So there's a video there. You can go watch. It's about 40 minutes long, give or take, but it's all about transcripts and transcript strategy. So go check that out. If you want, let me know what you think. If you've got any other recommendations in that area that you would throw my way, I would be happy to hear them especially if they help us get better faster and and whatnot at our transcripts so yeah do that that'd be cool there was uh one quick addendum there was an article that is going to be in the show notes that i totally forgot about oh and it's the technical debt is like tetris Have you ever played the game tetris with blocks falling sometimes you have to place a block suboptimally but as long as you clear it by later it's fine oh but if you place too many suboptimally then it piles up and gets ugly as a big fan of Tetris, I love that metaphor. Isn't that? As yeah. A, as it's... a fan of Tetris and metaphors, I love yeah. that. Thanks for listening, folks. It's been a year and a half. We're going into the second half of our season right now. Crazy. Um, it is a great ride, and I have enjoyed it thoroughly, and I'm glad that you've been here with us for it. And I think uh, when you're on that kind of ride, there's only one thing you can tell folks before you take off, and that's to keep your personas close and your users closer. Bye-bye. Yeah. Yeah.